Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hello. Hey, John, you here? I'm here as much as I am going to be. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, you know, it's uh, mainly just been a pain in that this I had more stuff scheduled and planned for this week that I wanted to do. How far along are you on the COVID? Are you coming to the end of it or are you in the middle of it? Yeah, no, I think I'm I'm coming to the end of it. Who all is coming in your family to see you? I didn't know if Aaron and uh, her husband and grandkid was coming, but they, they didn't make it. They came earlier in the year, and we had said, well, we'll go to Hawaii, and we didn't do it. That's a long trip. It's fun being there in Hawaii. I like Hawaii. I like, I'm kind of a beachy person. I like doing the beach. I know you're not. Yeah, no, I'm not at all. Yeah, Hawaii Hawaii's not a cheap destination. It is not, and not a cheap place to live. No, yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, I'm always surprised. You know, you would go to the grocery store, what a dozen eggs or staples are twice as Everything's much. Everything's got to be shipped in. The quality of produce was never very good in Galveston. Things went bad faster. Some of it was the climate. And, uh, but you'd think that being a port, it used to be a major banana port anyway. I don't know what else food wise comes in there. But mm-hmm. I had an uncle live down on South Padre Island. Yeah, that's quite a ways still from Galveston. As far as I know, he never had a job, except for one day he worked in the shipyard to avoid the draft in World <laughs> War II. But he always had money. He he made a lot of money. He spent all his time drinking and fishing. Oh, well, interesting. <laughs> what was he making his money from? Actually, my dad and him started a chain of beauty schools. Oh, okay. Interesting. And random. This is kind of random. It's a random thing. It was actually my dad's idea. They were going into New Orleans, and they had nothing, you know. And they approached a a business college originally. I don't think either one of them had any. You know, my dad may have gone to junior college or something, but they sold. they, They went to Spencer Business College and convinced the owner of it that they would begin a correspondence course for them. And they began selling those correspondence courses all over the country. <laughs> and, and then it transitioned into beauty school some way. I'm not quite sure how that happened. Gotcha. He always had prime piece of property. He was down on Lake Pontchartrain for a long time. Had a house right next to Al. You know who Al Hurt was? Uh-uh. He was a trumpet player, but it was okay. pretty famous in his time. Yeah, beautiful home there. And they sold yeah. that, moved out to South Padre. And of course, he always had a huge boat. Yeah, that he that he, he had, kept it. You know, money money coming in the mailbox, and he had money. People. I went stayed with him for. They had a. They also had a cabin up in Alabama, where he also fished. Mainly, he drank whiskey. I think, but. Uh, fishing was an excuse (laughs) (laughs) it was something to do you know between sips every year and i mean every year he bought two new cadillacs they would trade them in at the end they uh, i think one year they traded them in and they had 300 miles on them oh okay something you needed huh i guess yeah (laughs) i think jordan's joined us Jordan, are you there? Good. Yeah, I could. I, uh, sorry I was late, guys. Not a worry. Although <laughs> I, I am making a mark here on my calendar. <laughs> Give me on the naughty list right before Christmas. <laughs> so How are you all doing today? Nice to, nice to meet you. Well, I've got COVID. Oh, geez. <laughs> Very nice to meet you. Uh, happy to try to talk, but I'm not at my... I'm not at peak form today. Yeah, no. Well, yeah, you could. Well, you could have. You could have made the excuse. It would have been convincing. So that wasn't good enough, you know. <laughs> no, come on, on. Let's go. Let's keep doing this. 
I thought John's presence was important, even if he's not in top form. We'll we'll lock in this. I'm here with uh, John Toddy, Jonathan Toddy. John, you're in Chicago, but not actually Chicago. Where are you at right now? I, I am in Naperville, Illinois. Yeah, about an hour outside of Chicago. And Jonathan is an Episcopal priest. Uh, was formerly my student at uh, in undergraduate school, and also Jordan Wood, who I uh, it, it is really Jordan through your work that I've gotten into Maximus the Confessor, and I have just found your stuff a breath of fresh air. I just think the stuff you're doing is. I don't know anybody that, and of course, you know better than I do, but for me, you're unique in in uh, your reading of Maximus, uh, and uh, I, I think it's a pro uh, profoundly significant work that you're doing. Uh, Thanks, and, and Jordan, you're uh, in Indianapolis? Oh, so I'm in St. Louis, west of St. Louis. Oh, St. Louis, I got you in the wrong yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and George, your your main work uh is uh you're raising about a dozen kids. <laughs> it feels that way every single day. Yeah. <laughs> I got four four little kids, yes. Four, four girls. girls. Little girls. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Like you are so blessed. And but I'm not sure that uh, you've got that you've got all of the qualifications needed to raise four girls. That must be. <laughs> I'm sure I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's no training ground for that that sort of. Thing. No, it's an on the job kind of situation. On the job training. Hey, now that I've done it, I've raised three kids. I can tell you everything not to do. <laughs> also useful <laughs> oh man yeah no that's that's the main thing i'm up to i do some side projects on the you know when i can mostly translation at this point of various things but um yeah there's some other things on the horizon though that are looking promising so we'll see okay all right <laughs> and we actually share an alma mater we both went to ozark uh, yes, exactly. Once you've you're graduated from Ozark, that pretty <laughs> right. much shapes everything. The rest you're of in the brotherhood, even if you are, uh, <laughs> you know, dissident or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but the the occasion for this conversation, and John rightly has pointed out, Matt and John and I were just having a conversation, and I always just push record in case we say <laughs> something that sounds halfway intelligent and this was actually after just after we had talked to you matt and i had talked to you jordan and surprisingly jonathan came on with this i didn't know he was going to do it but he had this huge worked out opinion and we just started talking about it and i don't think john understood i was recording it and uh then uh, then i used it as a podcast uh <laughs> well i, I think i <laughs> so too i could remember actually the day listening to your initial podcast with jordan i was walking my dog around uh grace episcopal church in galveston texas and it was so enlightening and wonderful and uh felt like i was probably talking out loud and then uh, i remember calling and talking to you to do a different podcast and probably saying you know don't don't put that up <laughs> and sure enough it found its way up anyway which is okay <laughs> but uh yeah. you know it's uh it seems a little uh for me to try to speak both for david Villey hart and jordan daniel wood which is <laughs> so i think what you recorded me doing <laughs> well i i have to say at this point that when I reached out to Matt, I actually hadn't, I didn't listen to that episode for quite a while after. And I can't remember, I think he linked it or something at some point in a discussion that we were in. And so I listened to it later and I, I was sort of, 
I was, I think, I'd have to go back and look now, but I thought I was sort of joking with him initially. But then he was like, he took it pretty seriously, understandably. I, I'm not very good at social media. So I was like, I was like, oh, well, the thing is that the stuff that Jonathan's saying is is the right stuff. Like, that's the thing. Like, that the questions that are being raised and in in maybe potential objections or clarifications or whatever. It isn't like I thought that was out of place whatsoever. And especially because David has, David Hart has been has made some remarks and stuff i think about it and um you know that's good like that in my opinion that's i said that somewhere in the book i was like if this book has any success it's it's to kind of clarify the stakes you know like kind of clear the exegetical ground as it were Mm -hmm. for for maximus to kind of speak as i think he can obviously it's right there's all the hermeneutical stuff but like still it's the best i can do to kind of bring him out in a way that's some distinctive in his own voice as a more contemporary contributor or participant in conversations that are, are that our conversations are tensions are back and forth questions, Mm -hmm. disagreements. And so I actually thought it was good. Like, I think I, I don't know if I framed it in in my, in jest, if I framed it too negatively and it sounded like I was like upset. I was like, I was like, no, no, I was more like, this is, this is good. This is the stuff to talk about. Um, and, uh, you know, we have there's things here to, to discuss. But so, yeah, no, not at all. Matt said you were very complimentary. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But ha- has Hart ever clarified? Because you're right. It, in several lectures, it's like while he's lecturing on other topics, on he'll be like, yes. oh, and by the way, this upcoming scholar, Jordan Daniel Wood, has written this great thing on Maximus. But I don't agree with some of it. <laughs> and then he never exactly uh, explains what his issue is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think he's ever clarified it. Is my is my short answer. But I th- I think and uh, how do I want to put it? I think like I love David, and and that's really the main main thing to say is that we have we have a we have an, an interesting and good relationship. I think a, a really let's say a let's say a generative one. And um, and obviously, I respect him as somebody who's taught me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's you know, he's mm-hmm. not only not only in terms of like the generation prior to me, but like as we all know, and doesn't really need to be said, he's sort of in his le- a league of his own. So there's no question about that. And we we also we've had really funny exchanges, mostly via email and stuff. That uh, uh, all of which I've saved someday for you know for the uh, three people that are interested actually in it, but. Um, like there's a kind of trust there where it's like, we'll go on like vociferous, you know, rants against each other (laughs) and disagreements, but then there's always one of us at some point is kind of like, but you know, at the end of the day, like we're, we're closer to each other than either of us is to almost anyone else out there. I mean, that's, that's a little broad, but you know what I mean? Like, like we're, we've got so much, we we know we can't really get away from each other. (laughs) It's kind of the way to put it. You know, on mm-hmm. the landscape and so and i don't want to get it yeah i don't want to get away with them but yeah there's that but i do nevertheless i do think it's clear that we have some pretty strong disagreements and i got a lot of thoughts about why that could be or or exactly what they are that's mm-hmm. and david has so far been far more drastic surprise surprise in his um conclusion about how far apart we are whereas i actually am holding out a little more optimistic view um and I think so far, the little bit of the critiques that I've seen from him are basically misunderstandings, I think. And then and then I also think Bulgakov is an interesting mediating figure between us. And I, I don't think Bulgakov is just on one of our sides, is one way to put mm-hmm. it, is a kind of an interesting point. Like, I think Bulgakov dev- has some important developments across his own thought, but I, I really do think that like it's not an accident that um Bogakov himself says that like the neo-calcedonians like in neo-calcedonians is quote quote the origins of christian personalism that would be an important point because i do think one and one example of a divergence between david and, david and i is that he's he seems i think understandably um hesitant towards quote-unquote personalist thought i i happen to think the label is not hugely helpful but like you know, because it's quite a swath of people. But I think what he's, one of the things he's afraid of, which is an actual trend, of course, from and from the 19th century on, especially, is the reduction of person to will, and then the absolutization of will. 
And so will against nature, person against nature as a kind of, you know, dualism almost. Um, and that's how some people could read, like, say, John Zazulis or, um, you know, some of the personalist trends, almost like a pure existentialism after start sort of thing. But uh, that's definitely not what I think. That's not what I think um, Bulgakov means. It's not what I mean. And it's not what I would mean by personalism. So anyway, that, that's getting into the weeds a little bit. I think... I think that would be an example of like, these are really important topics and themes to discuss around our divergences and without trying to preemptively dilute them or, or deny them. Um, I do still think there's much clarification that should be had, but I don't know of an actual place where he's, where he's done that. And sometimes and it's remarks in like interviews and sometimes it's yeah, like, yeah. and I, and I've indicated that to him and been like, well, you know, uh, look like, let's lay it out. Like what's the, sometimes it's like adjacent figures that I can't always tell if he's talking to them or me or both. So I don't know, you know, it, you know how it goes. So let me, let yeah. me state it as we brought it up in the conversation and what we're hitting upon. And that is that Hart's tendency, the, the way we said this or the way that it came out, whether it's correct or not, that is, if you're not going to talk about the person of Christ, then the tendency is to fall into abstractions rather than the concrete personhood of Christ. And is that then the, your point about personalism, that any kind of theory, any kind of move into abstraction any kind that the the tendency is to mistake little w word for big w word yeah so i think a few things there one i wouldn't say like i am not against abstraction in itself that would be abstract <laughs> to do that right right so, yeah. so so what i think is but to your point i think paul like i think um if you're going to make a judgment on on a position and you're going to do so based on supposed logical contradictions. Logical contradictions are usually identifiable by uh, opposed abstractions. And then what you do is you say you're sort of indulging both both of these, but they are, you know, A and not A. And so it's absurd or it doesn't make sense or it's a contradiction or it's a logical and a logical. Yeah, like a, I think I think the words that he's used before sort of like a logical nonsense or something like that. So. So you you do have to so it's 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 then you have to be clear then about what is the relationship between the abstractions that you are putting against each other and the actual position that you're critiquing through that juxtaposition or that opposition I should say. And so, for example, the, to be more clear about this specific, if the critique is, and I have seen it sometimes stated this way, though I've also seen it walked back, and so I'm not entirely sure. If the critique is the problem with neo-Chalcedonian Christology is that it, it, it thinks that abstract oppositions can be nicely and maybe even magically resolved in some quote-unquote principle of hypostasis or principle person, that would be an inaccurate sort of critique. For one thing, it's pretty clear certainly in maximus but i really think also in leontius of byzantium already and i also think bulgakov knew this that um that there is no such thing as a person in principle <laughs> the person could be the principle but the person isn't in principle in terms of its actual concrete existence there's no such thing as an abstract person in other words so so that wouldn't make any sense. And especially too, the way that the, that Chalcedonian Christology, if you're going to make that the basis of any kind of metaphysics or ontology, then it's already built into the thing that there is no actual nature without a person, nor a person without a nature. In fact, that was that was a principle that almost all parties post-Chalcedonian agreed on. That's why they could even disagree. The Miaphysites could reject Chalcedon. Because they held to this sort of, again, abstract principle that there is no nature without a hypostasis. So for them, when they see two natures, they see two hypostases. Now, the Neo-Chalcedonian reaction would, was to say, well, we agree with that principle in principle, this, this, this sort of generic thing that there's no, there's no nature without a hypostasis. We just think that that doesn't mean every nature 
equals its own separate hypothesis automatically. In other words, there could be what was called and then adopted at 553 Constantinople, the the composite person, or the actually it's really like the synthesized or synthesizing person. So that the two natures are not, it's still true to say Christ's two natures are not real without a hypothesis or apart from a hypothesis, just that he himself has both and is both. Okay, again, however you assess that thing, the point would be um, the disagreement isn't over whether or not a quote-unquote principle of hypostasis can resolve our our abstract and logical contradictions or antinomies. I don't think that would be a very uh, relevant sort of critique to make of the, at least the view that I'm trying to put forth. Um, now, but then sometimes the, then sometimes the critique seems to not be that. It seems to be something like a methodological one almost. Like, why begin with the opposition of human and divine? After all, isn't it sort of a feature of divine transcendence that there is no rivalry or competition between, say, the primary and secondary causes or divine, like Rowan Williams, divine agency and human mm -hmm. agency and so forth, right? And so the very framing of the thing, that's the worry. So it's less, so then it shifts from, I have a problem with how you supposedly resolve the antinomies. To I have a problem with antinomy itself as a methodological starting point. A few things to say to that, and then maybe we can see what you want, what you make out of this. Mm -hmm. One is that if that's the critique, I don't know how you can endorse Bulgakov's Lamb of God as a good Christology, let alone the the greatest Christology in the 20th century, which is what David says, uh, because the entire thing especially when you get to the, the sections on kenosis, is built on antinomy, explicitly, um, to, to, like, to an uncomfortable degree for, for even like von Balthasar, you know, my, even though he, he takes quite a lot from it, from Bulgakov. I'm reading, reading right now a really great book by Bruce McCormick. Uh, what's it called? The, uh, the Humility of the Eternal Son or something like that. The, uh, the repair of Chalcedon or something, but he's got a whole sections on all of these major thinkers. And it's, and he points the same thing out. I mean, it's very clear that Bogakov, as a lot of the Russian silver age thinkers did actually, they use antinomy. They use the content of antinomy as a framework. They don't think it's the end by any means, but they think there's something really gained there by saying, yes, on the level of logic, these things are oppositional. The question is, does reality simply conform to, logic as we perceive it or which is to say mind as it perceives itself that they disagree with on christological grounds i think anyway that's a different thing but but so so that's one point is that i'm not i don't quite understand how to make sense of mm -hmm. bogakov's own christology if you're going to say the problem is antinomy as a framework that would seem to make him fall swiftly under that judgment the other thing though is that um we do we have to get clear about what what would it you can't have an abstract critique of antinomy like in that way. I don't think it's not about whether there's an antinomy. I don't think that's even optional in Christian theology. Like there's gotta be a moment for abstraction and antinomy to do its work. I don't even think you can get off the ground and, and, and thinking generally, but certainly in theology, unless you have that moment, wherever it happens to fall along the methodological sequence. Uh, most of the this is the other thing i don't quite understand most of if it were true that there should be no a priori perception of an of of, of abstract antinomy say between humanity and divinity creator you know creature eternal temporal whatever other one you want to juxtapose then i don't really i can't make sense at all of almost all of the say patristic era christological controversies like, unless you're going to make the claim that they're all just simply reduced to power plays and theology or, or politics and power under the guise of theology, which, yes, off, did happen, of course. But if you're going to reduce all the conversations to that, um, or if you're not going to do that, then you have to say, why were they, why was it so unclear? Like, why, why, could, why couldn't we have just said, well, you know, the reason why the incarnation is not nonsensical is simply because humanity is always already divine. And divinity is always already human, so what's the big deal? 
Well, it seems like nobody got that for like 700 years or probably a lot longer. Um, I think it's not at all surprise i mean look we can go to the end of the nicomachean ethics and aristotle himself is puzzled at whether or not if we could maintain a perpetual activity of theoria which is proper to divine nature whether or not we would remain human so he's perceiving some kind of antinomy already wholly apart from christology so i don't really th see why that antinomy is somehow uh i don't see how it could be the problem like, like the critique has to be far more specific if that's going to be the issue. Is that I don't like how you, like, it really often feels like a sort of anti-Bartian tick that just says, well, I don't like the dialectical feel of this thing. And we, after all, we've seen what dialectical theology was like in the early and mid 20th century. And that stuff kind of leads to some overblown, nonsensical, supposedly Christocentric, but world denying tendencies about which I would agree, actually, and about which parts of the later Bart would actually agree, I think. So, so sure, that's fine, but let's be clear that that's the critique then, would be about a certain kind of dialectical theology, but don't don't pretend like that's somehow leveled at antinomy in relation to Christology in some generic way. I don't know, those are some responses I would have to that, and that's an example of the kind of thing where I'm like, I don't know where the goalposts are here. What, exact, mm -hmm. what exactly is the issue? So, so My own thoughts, that's very helpful and interesting. My own thought would be that perhaps, um, let's set aside whatever perceived disagreement there may be between Hart and you, and think about who Hart's other targets are when he has this sort of discussion. I think that helps to make more sense about it, especially the way you framed uh, sort of the methodological issue with antinomy. Not that antinomy itself is a problem, and actually, as you pointed out, I think rightly, uh, if we're talking about in the way of discovery, how do we learn things? How do we argue? How do we, uh, how did all of the content basically of the early Christian councils come about? It is exactly in that fashion. The only way people could think about Jesus or argue towards common ground. Uh, what I think Hart's response would be, again, well, I don't know why I think I should try to speak for him. My own, my own thought <laughs> about this, rather, let's put it that way. <laughs> that's fine. That's no, fine. Rather, is that um, somebody like Bulgakov uh, or um, Lonergan or uh, I, I would say Aquinas on his good days? Um, what are origin? What they realize is, of course, that what those antinomies represent is a prior monism or a prior unity. And not everybody gets that. So you have whole systematic theologies done today that don't seem to realize that point, that have lost the primary place of thinking about what is anything in reference to final causality. Uh, and in that light, I think those critiques make a lot of sense. So that when you read somebody, or like when I read somebody like Bulgakov or Origen, what stands out to, as a helpful remedy is this insistence upon um, when they, the language of the co-eternality of creation, of being able to say that, of course, humanity is already always divine because uh, humanity is not created, and you. this is something that you said and uh, when you're talking about Maximus in your own book. It's not as if we want to imagine God standing alongside a timeline. And if that is all the case, then when we think about creation, Christ truly is at the heart of creation in the sense that all of creation is according to the wisdom of God that is the incarnation already itself. There is no humanity conceived without a view to divine humanity. Uh, there is no getting behind that, so to speak. And it seems to me that that's the parts of, say, Bulgakov uh, or Origen that Hart likes to emphasize. And when he talks about Bulgakov especially, it seems that he likes the way that Bulgakov does not then shy away from the implications of that fact of the idea of a prior unity, a prior monism, a prior wholeness. Um, that most other theologians will, because at some point it will seem too radical. It'll seem too radical to say something like, well, humanity is already always divine. But 
I think that is an implication. But again, yeah, it's, no. to say that, that would be, um, from my own perspective, to say that kind of statement, you're approaching the problem from the way of teaching rather than the way of discovery. Yes, exactly. No, that's that's really well put, Jonathan. I think so. A few a few thoughts come to mind there. What one one way to characterize, I think, some of our divergent tendencies, David and I, is that um, is that because we share so much fundamentally, <laughs> sometimes the disagreement mm -hmm. is more like whose position is more vulnerable yeah, to yeah. Our, our common critics, you know, yeah, yeah. and so. So it's like a friendly divergence. And here I would make I would make that critique back to David. It's like when you open, you are God's. And I was actually at the talk he gave that first. And and, and even then I was like, well, and you say, you know, it's funny, but you make a joke about like, you know, uh, root vegetables and stuff. And you do sort of mm -hmm. the acorn and the tree thing. Mm -hmm. We've got to be very careful about what exactly we're saying. Because in a certain way, I think heart is totally right about so, so the just to recapitulate that point his point is i think like like you were invoking there right teleology and sort of like i think it's a pretty indisputable one which is nothing can become what what it wasn't in some sense already you know it's a sort of potency to act thing and so if like like for now stipulate that the end for human beings is nothing less than deification you know however you construe that then in a sense you all you know and maximus does say this like you like adam was already made like he actually says boldly had adam not sinned he would have achieved the same identity mm -hmm. hypostatic union that christ himself achieved so that's one of the few times he only indulges that he indulges this sort of counterfactual thing um but okay so on one level i i what i would want to put it this way i think that the problem here is we're sort of his his presentation of this kind of like humanity and divinity relation is vulnerable to a critique unnecessarily so because there's an equivocation in what he means by nature. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, and actually even Thomas Aquinas makes this, this distinction between what nature, not natura or natus can mean. And, and, and I think it actually holds up across several different thinkers, but you have the sense of nature of what just that broader formal point of what was already there, present, latent, however you want to put it, in potency and potentiality. The other, though, nuance or sort of view of nature is everything that some or what something is, like the entire set of sort of the complete formal powers that reduce to act will perfect that thing as the thing of its kind, you know? And so the, the more Aristotelian point about human beings, the perfect human activity, which brings the perfect proper human happiness needs to be the realization or enacting of that power, which is most distinctive and therefore characteristic of the kind of thing the human is, which is for him, right? Uh, theoria, the contemplation. <laughs> His only issue is that we can't do it right in perpetuity, like the gods should be able to. So fine. That so, and that's another nuance or another another sort of view of of um, of nature. But notice what it does is it trades on a kind of logical taxon, like a like 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 Aristotle's organon or Porphyry's isagoge, which is something's nature can both be everything that it always already was in potential but also that which distinguishes it as a kind from other kinds. And what I want to say is I accept the first sense, if that's David's presentation mm -hmm. of, of the relation, I accept the first sense, not the second. And what I would say then is I want to put it this way. His approach, I think David's sort of intuitive approach, which I like, is more phenomenological for this reason. Because what he's trying to do is say, well, look, Look at what the tree be is actually, what it, its manifestation, its phenomenon. And that is, in a sense, it has to, whatever it is, whatever it becomes in its end, it has to have always have been in its beginning and its potential. And that I think is right. All I want to say is that, but what it was in its beginning was already supernatural. So I wouldn't want to care. So it's already ecstatic in its very actual origin, mm -hmm. not in this logical origin. Not when you map it out with species and differentia and genera. That wouldn't make any sense. 
But the problem is in, in, in antiquity and in late antiquity and even in the Middle Ages, those two ways of speaking are melded together. You know, it's you can speak of the beginning of a genus mm-hmm. uh, as its principle. The principle, and there's even, as you know, like in Latin, there's a verb for this to mm-hmm. to principle. <laughs> to principle a genus is to say you are the perfection of the thing that distinguishes every other member of that genus from other genera, right? And that's a very Aristotelian old logic but also Neoplatonic commentary sort of way to do it, that does seep into the fathers and so forth. But I think it's highly critical that then post-Chalcedonian Christological debates are pulling on exactly those sources. And that's so, that's part of what's fueling the disagreement, where you'll have, well, look, if Jesus is a hybrid essence, for example, then he's just neither kind, neither divine nor human. That's a logical judgment. Uh, that, uh, about since you know what's intelligible there, um, and that's what they usually mean by like essence, essence mm-hmm. or uzia or whatever. It's more like in that logical register. Uh, but then you've got somebody like, you know, maybe we'll say Cyril or uh, Severus of Antioch, representing Miaphysites, and they're less interested in that kind of thing. In fact, they explicitly reject it from one of their own members who proposes it at one point. They they want nature to be that dynamism that I think is closer to what Hart thinks of as nature. Mm-hmm. This sort of organic, almost I would I've even pointed out to to him before, like it's it's a more like an idealist sense of like um the organic system, the organic whole is itself the sort of it, it is everything it is and its synthesis and its wholeness, and it will sort of unfold in, in in its due course. And that's fine. Like that's I don't so I'm just saying what I want to do is parse out the differences here. And um and so if we're going to take the phenomenological approach, the acorn and to the tree, I can say, yes, that's right, it's right if all it means is Nothing can become, uh, you know, what it wasn't always, always from its actual origin, from its natus, its birth, nature in that sense. Okay, good. All I want to say is that the person of Christ is already in the origin of everything, and the person of Christ isn't reducible to any abstract, logical mm-hmm. sense of nature. And so, it. So I would say, the fact that no human exists except to become in its end. God is, is is I would rather say it's evidence that we never actually were simply what we are by nature. We never were that. It's as it were in our nature to be above nature or to go beyond nature, just as we say in the Trinity that because God is Trinity, his nature you know his nature is not just negatively beyond all nature, which is one way to talk about God or beyond essence or being but positively takes the form of actual mutual interpersonal love, which is the Trinity. That, I think, takes us closer to Bulgakov's actual sense of, say, Sophia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the way I would run it. And all I'm trying to say is I think my way of running it is less vulnerable to pretty pretty standard Thomist critiques or even analytic critiques because all they're going to say is, so you think we're God by nature. You know, and yeah. so, or or you think, or you think God is sort of right implicated in the human beings, like by his very essence, as if his his identity of being God has to be complete in his act of right, what incorporating mm-hmm. humanity or mm-hmm. whatever. The only reason why that critique makes sense is if they're constricting nature to that second sense, the logical sense, and they're they're obsessed with that, and they reify abstractions. That's why it's all so they do revel in the antinomies. So to your point, Jonathan, that yeah, is really absolutely. crucial yeah. because he sees that rightly. Two-tier Thomism. What is that if not the great sort of abstraction of uh, the great reification of abstraction, right? Um, and he rightly wants to go against it. And so it's almost like on the level of strategy here, where I where I want to say, I also want to go against it. And I also agree with you formally and phenomenologically about the point, you know. That you can't become in your end what you weren't always in your beginning. But I think neither beginning nor end is encapsulated by formal perfection. Because no person is a form. Mm-hmm. Even though they have forms and have formal powers. You know, the formal powers of the soul is not the person. It's not Paul or John. 
even though you have to have them in order to become who you are. We don't know what a perfect person looks like. That's why Aristotle could only talk about the perfect human. Because how, what's the perfect Paul? Mm-hmm. You're not. Yeah, there's no way to get to that except by actually experiencing him. And, and in a way, I don't know who I am perfectly. And it's actually part of my self-conscious that I have to discover who I am. Right? Not in a purely romantic sense. But like I have to discover who I am, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, as I know him. And this sort of dynamism, that's what I want to highlight. And say if we can if we can rush to love as the as the heart of the life of the Trinity and the thing that affects the the incarnation and therefore the creation, then we recharacterize the beginning and end of God's act of creation and its perfection and deification in in a way that is not that retains the first sense of nature in terms of right form and and becoming what you always already are, but does not retain the second sense of the restrictions of the logic of essence or nature. So that we run into absurdities or we leave ourselves open to a pretty obvious critique, um, which is something like, oh, well, you've eradicated grace or you've, you know, depersonalized God or the human being because you've just reduced this natural process that sort of has to. Right. And I don't think David falls into that, by the way. I don't think I don't think that's correct to say he thinks it's just sort of this automatic, mindless, whatever. I don't think almost anyone thinks that. But. I can see why certain ways of putting it leads people to like latch on to that. So I, I don't know. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense or is it really that. No, helpful? it does. You know, that's, that's very helpful. I think, and well, I, I, I appreciate you're right. Nobody thinks that that is, those are neotombist critiques, however. Yes. Um, I mean, in other words, I, I think there is for whatever reason, a real anxiety that speaking this way is somehow going to, devalue the integrity of nature yeah which um i well, i don't think it does but in other words that's a uh, one of and then by virtue also devalue the integrity of grace but this is you know so interestingly enough going down this path one of the ways in grace and freedom that lonergan begins to square the circle of how uh, you know, and Aquinas doesn't actually use the term free motion from Aristotle. He talks about it in terms of application. But he's going to start talking in this way of how is um, God's grace already present both in you be in, especially in terms of actual grace being both operative and cooperative. And he's going to turn to the Aristotelian idea of free motion. And I think in this way, what you have is something interesting. If we're talking about actual grace, we're, we're talking about God working on us in such a way that our hearts are both moved towards that love that is our final end, but also in such a way that we are able to cooperate or God will cooperate in our own willing this final end for ourselves but not quite in the same way uh, as what we're more comfortable, usually, to, or at least the medieval church is more comfortable with, was in terms of habitual grace, sort of life of the church. He's going to say this is also active in terms of your uh, justification, in terms of um, being able to will the good, uh, being able to become the good in these ways. I think that idea of pre-motion allows us to have the conversation that you were just having, as well as this one, in a way in which you can say evacuating nature of its own intelligibility, and neither are we saying that grace is mechanical or automatic, but it is, um, it is, it is I, I always kind of default to sort of the Austin Fair or Rowan Williams way of talking about this. It's just on a different level. It's mm-hmm. the level that any of your own actions or cooperation with grace operate within. And so it's an operation within an operation of sorts. And I think once you make, but this is a move that a lot of the two-tier Thomas people don't want to make. <laughs> in other words, yeah. it's, and maybe it is a way also of coming at, you could come back around to the idea of an obediential potency, um, talking about how, how did you put it? Our, our human nature is already supernatural. Um, I think in terms of the obediential potency that you're using desire to kind of say the same thing. In other words, 
yes, this desire, this innate desire, the Lonergan would talk, talk about it as the unrestricted desire to know. Mm-hmm. So that this move between potency and act in the intellect, uh, that of course requires judgments of truth or, or falsity. Uh, it's not that the movement itself is mechanically sure all the time. There are dead ends, but this move from potency to act, even in the intellect, uh, is the same ultimate move from potency to act of who or what we are. He gets away from using words like nature or will because he finds them confusing to people for all these very reasons. But <laughs> it, it is a way of it's true. It's true. You know, fully human. Uh, and I don't think it's not a sort of in the end for him, this he sort of gets accused of this sometimes. It's not uh, a sort of return to a Kantian rationalism, rationalizing right. to say that what it means to be fully human is to be a fully engaged human knower. It's to say, actually, that is to live uh, the divine life, which, as you said, is maybe it's etheria. Maybe it is um, uh, it's the idea of living in accordance with the intentionality of all things, which would have to be according to the divine mind or divine wisdom or divine love. Uh, at this mm-hmm. point. So I, that's very helpful, I think. And I think I'm, we're tracking. Yes, yeah. Well, I, and I like, I really like the turn. So, John, is it in Grace and Freedom, is Lonergan the unrestricted desire to know? Which, of course, I, I knew immediately well, through his... that's an insight. Ma- that's an insight. Okay, I was, I was, that's what I was about to ask. I was like, okay, I was like, because I, I knew some of the later stuff and certainly how that plays out methodologically and stuff is very important with the self-critical sort of uh realism of human knowing so insight is a more generic way of talking about uh, if you read grace and freedom which of course is a dissertation and then he writes a textbook in latin while he's teaching in rome um called the Antichrist as one does right. yes as one does as one must as one <laughs> right. must do um yes, <laughs> that's right uh, supernaturality is all about the how grace and freedom actually works so it is this right. idea that you are becoming God in as much as you can as a creature. Um, you are becoming God fully. You are knowing God fully in this way. And um, he talks about this as a communicated. Um, mm-hmm. a, 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 I'm foggy. Um, a communicated expression of the divine nature. Like a communicated creation of the divine nature. Anyway, I'd have to go get a book that I don't have at home. But in any case, <laughs> um, this tracks along with sort of Aquinas' thing. You know, there's a real relationship between us and God, but not of God and us. In other words, trying to describe this difference between what it means for God to be God and for us to be God is in some way a difference of uh, dependency. And, you know, God is not, of course, dependent upon anything. It's sort of basic moves that he's making there to take you but then in insight, he's going to recapitulate all of this in terms of the unrestricted desire to know. And he's going to just yeah. talk very basically about how this works out in an insight, how you have an insight, and then you go on to judge an insight. Uh, and then if an insight is judged as true, one is compelled uh, ethically to live accordingly. Or there's three might come around and say, well, there's something wrong there. In other words, this is not uh, mechanical or assured. Or rather, mm-hmm. Aquinas, uh, not Aquinas, Lonergan takes up Aquinas's, um, actually, I think it's from Ecclesiastes, right? The number of uh, stupid people is infinite. Uh, there's a statistical mm-hmm. uh, trend towards us sinning, uh, towards us making bad decisions, towards us closing ourselves off from new knowledge or other people or making decisions that are good long term. We, we forego those in terms of short term fixes. All of that goes against the unrestricted desire to know. That's sin, because the unrestricted desire to know is ultimately open towards God himself, and that's how insight ends with this, like, 27, 28-step argument uh, that is just leading you, you know, to say, well, here is how this is in accordance with all things, ultimately uh, the truth of God, the love of God, etc., yeah, and so I, I've always overlaid that on some of what Hart is saying. So when he mm-hmm. says things like, you know, we're um, we're already we're already always divine. Well, and as you said, there's a legitimate and perhaps an illegitimate way of explaining that. But one of the legitimate ways that I would take it, in terms of our teleology, in terms of final causality, is not just that that's at sort of this ultimate meta level but that's already being expressed in every grasp of an insight 
uh, actually, whether true or false, uh, it's already being grasped. And then, of course, there are further steps to, to ensure that we live rightly according uh, according to the warp and whiff of, the, of God's intentionality for all things, as you might say. Yeah. No, I, I, and I, I really like that. I like that. Like, like David, I think one of the things I do appreciate about Lonergan, again, the, the, you know, I'm what I've been exposed to so far and um, both through his, some of his writings um, and through some of his, you know, mm-hmm. devotees is, is this emphasis on desire. It, there, there's a, to me, there's a kind of resonance between like, a, and I know I'm not at all the first to say this. A lot of other people are saying it now, but, um, and have before me, but I, I, I hear resonances of like Blondell mm-hmm. um, and, and this sort of like, you know, uh, the act, like, like the philosophy or the structure of the act is always already more than whatever apprehension you have retroactively of. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's the heuristic and structure. And exactly. Games. Yes. And I, and I, so I love all that stuff. One thing I've been playing with, and I don't know enough at this point, either about uh, Blondell or Lonergan to say, say much about how this relates to them, but but one of the things that arises always in these discussions when I hear some of these themes mentioned is I think there's what I think a Christological sort of approach to a lot of these different things and intuition, which I admittedly have maybe maybe to a fault. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but is is that I always want to get to the positive upshot. And I feel like a lot of the ways to diagnose and, and sort of characterize the structures terminate in a kind of openness, which is good. A, a, a capaciousness, a sort of, you know, a, an obediential potency, a sort of attending and waiting for the act, you know, the encounter, the union, whether that's the union of of the intellect with the truth, which is God, or or whether it's some other way, um, is, is that they're usually, it is sort of necessarily or understandably kind of negatively framed, right? It's like, well... Mm-hmm. The act is, and that's Blondell is explicit about that, and for even apologetic reasons. And I don't think that's bad. I think that's just fine. I also find it very intriguing. Blondell's <laughs> when he does get a little, I think, looser methodologically. He's very, he very often re- relates this whole structure to incarnation itself. Um, you know, and um, his pan Christism or whatever, mm-hmm. however he he accepted the, but um. I've always, I've had I've been thinking for a while now about the sort of structure of desire and intentionality and and what exactly we intend when we intend anything in particular. And I do think there's a very it's very clear that clear to me and true and I like the whole line of thought that says we desire, you know, desiring any particular good or to know any particular truth or whatever is itself all, already a manifestation of the desire to know the good or the truth. Um, which is beyond any particular instantiation of it, which I think is right. I mean, I think that's hard to argue with that. Um, mm-hmm. Although I've heard people try, it's kind of interesting. But um, but I kind of wonder if there's not also another dynamic simultaneously in play, which isn't just we always, what we, here's what, I'll just state it and let's see if I can unpack it a little bit. I don't actually think what we desire in particular, when we're desiring particular goods and simultaneously the good is just the good what we're trying to desire is the good determinate we're trying to desire the good being a particular good while remaining the good we're desiring the union of the good and and particular goods so i'm not sure that the unrestrict like if if unrestricted and again i have no way saying anything about lonergan here but if unrestricted means simply more than any particular restriction or determination of our object of desire or intentionality or our intention. I think that's half, half the truth. It's, it's when I, when I, especially in these, like the, the moments we all sort of know when we run through the moments of beauty. And this is where I think the aesthetic dimension, especially earlier in David's writings was, was captivated me as well. The, the, you know, the interactions of love, you know, seeing your first child, your, your child born or whatever, all these things, sunset, all that stuff. It's not, I at least don't think what we're intending and experiencing in those moments is the good piecemeal, but there's more beyond. And that would be the good sort of beyond all particular goods, even this particularly good mm-hmm. one. <laughs> But actually what we're desiring is the incarnation of the good in and as all things. 
We're desiring what seems to be logically impossible, that the infinite would be determinate enough to know and experience directly. And so that other side of the dynamic of intentionality, I think, sometimes underplayed. Um, and I want to bring that up because I don't think the point of all this to connect it to our conversation prior is I don't see any theory that can re re resolve that. The theory, really can, yeah. the, the, the theory can trace... And this is where I think it is resonant with like a lot what I know of Lonergan, but certainly of mm -hmm. Blondell. The theory can trace the pining, the desire. Mm -hmm. It can even trace the contours, the intelligibility of the desire. But what we find is we desire what seems abstractly impossible. And yet it's the very ground of all of our desire, actual desires, and our abstractions about what we desire and know and experience. And if that's true, Actually, someone did. No, it was it was a poem from T.S. Eliot. He says he says at one point in this line, he says, uh, the, "I wish I could. I wish I was one of those people that could just recite, you know, poems from memory." But <laughs> alas, I'm a father of four and a cardigan in a basement. So, um, <laughs> I uh, no, but it says something like he says something like our one desire is just this, and then he has a colon. It says incarnation. And that's how I've always read that. Is we can trace out. You can theory can trace out and needs to even trace out and maybe for whatever ends apologetic for Blondell or to to trace out sort of the mythological clarity that that I know of at least from Lonergan but there's much more there of course as you know better than I do but it's um it's also showing us that there is no actual resolution that can be anticipated through our abstractions about the problem or the tension or the paradox it's it's of our own and yet we are desiring and intending and so you can know that you can know and reflect upon that so it's not like a mere mystery beyond it's 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 actually the fundamental thing that's present and giving you it's generating the whole quest itself the right the questioning the yeah. so that's I, I bring all that up because that, to me this would be a phenomenological way to get at what I want to get at with that first sense of nature yeah, but giving but giving it a hermeneutic or a way of interpreting it. What I want to say is, this is not evidence simply that we are destined or sort of always already going to actualize a potency in us that terminates in divinity or or God or whatever sort of big abstract thing. Yes, yeah, but it is actually evidence that what has always already been present is the desire and that is ecstatic which is to say properly that the proper sense of ecstasis it goes beyond what we perceive even our own nature to be and that second sense of nature yes so the you so, can get at it right phenomenologically and, and through these other methods i am not a methodological purist in the sense of like and yeah. this is where i do i think i depart most from certain sorts of bartians is i don't I don't think it's actually Christologically robust enough to have an abstract sort of thing where you're like, well, you got to start with Christ. I think if Christ really is the whole Christ, you can start anywhere and get to it. Yeah. So anyway, but that's, I said a lot. This, there, no, this so is me... very helpful because uh, the first thing I want to say, um, so the unrestricted desire to know is not identical or synonymous with the desire for God. Because the unrestricted right, desire right, to right, know right, right. is just, um, that is a way of describing the dynamic aspect of the human mind that moves from potency to act. So for Lonergan, the main point there is that you can experience this movement of things from potency to act, even yourself. You can sit down and open your eyes, look around and wonder about something and have this experience. It doesn't mean it's true, which means right. the unrestricted desire to know isn't just an unrestricted desire to know the good. It's just to know anything. It's because this is the dynamic yeah, okay. way we're structured. Uh, okay. He's just going to say that works because it's commensurate with the intentionality of God, which is but which is a much more sure uh, intentionality uh, based on God's wisdom and love that all things will be at what they are to be at the end. Uh, but while this this is fascinating because this is his own, what you were saying ties into this so well. So his, he's got this quote, it comes in several different versions, I may put two of them together, but his sort of maxim, and I always think it sounds so basic, but 
you can get into it. It's how he's walking this line between idealism or uh, empiricalism. Says, you know, be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, or be responsible. Sometimes it's both. Uh, and then he says, be loving, yeah. and if necessary, change. And the be loving ultimately is going to be tied into Christology, specifically the law of the cross, which is that it is good that Christ gives up his life instead of taking life, and that is from where love springs. Uh, you, are you familiar with the work of Robert Doran? He was at Marquette. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. I'm familiar with okay. him and his you've, students, you've but not his work. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. okay. I had a class so with he, Fred Lawrence. So Yes, there you go. So he's building off of that specifically. I always confuse that he has two book titles. It sounds so. It's a, in a trilogy that he was writing at the time that he died. And he's going to take that up and talk about how this is a way of overcoming evil. This is a way of dealing with secularism. It's a way of dealing with a church that wants to make things sacred that aren't. But coming back to your point, in other words, the, the unrestricted desire to know is just who we are. You could you could use uh, for Lonergan. This is how what he's replaced the idea of natural law with. So this structure in in the mind and the human person of being open to having insights, but then insights have to be judged. So uh, what you're open to knowing, as you said rightly, is not determined. It's anything right. and everything. Uh, so where does the determining factor come in? Well, it has to do with truth and love, uh, judgment, and uh, we use the biblical word, Jesus is full of um, uh, truth and grace, is that what it is? Um, yeah. You bring those two things together in this move of judgment and responsibility, love. Uh, <laughs> so he doesn't always use all three of those categories. The idea being, uh, if you have an insight, think that it actually is true to make a judgment you have a personal stake in it uh, so something else that you said you don't always know what you're becoming so uh and i think this is another thing with Hart's sort of pronouncement on some of these things to me it seems very much like uh what i would call the way of teaching it's like he said this is the end point that none of us really grasp it's just the way that he thinks it has to be but how do you actually get there? Well, who knows? We don't even know what that looks like. And I think he's more honest about that in his um, Tradition and Apocalypse book. Um, yeah. One of my friends said that's a very irresponsible book. I'm not sure exactly what he meant. But anyway, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> uh, I think that's what this is getting at. So the human, as a human being, we are in... Um, progress it's a dynamic experience we're growing this knowledge when we judge something to be true is personal knowledge it changes us it transforms us it's who we are becoming ultimately that what determines that is this love that is the love of the cross it is the love of the incarnation um and so that would be the theological way of coming in at this and so if you take Lonergan structure there, seriously, what he's saying is just a sort of open, undetermined desire to know this constant movement from potency to act that we're experiencing only finds determination, fulfillment, uh, transformation, conversion, growth, etc., into fullness or wholeness, uh, authenticity, according to the love of Christ, which is the incarnation. In a lot of ways, he's just trying, uh, I shouldn't say just, uh, in a lot of ways, what he is trying to do or what he is succeeding in doing is showing how our experience of reality and coming to knowledge and truth is only is possible and real and can be trusted as human development and growth because the incarnation is true, because right. God uh, has created according to this intentionality, et cetera, which I heard seems to be what you were a part of what you were yes. saying yourself there. I am of the persuasion that post Kant and it's not it doesn't obviously doesn't mean you're just Kantian but if you are post Kant in like a, a a real sense you have to get you have to get there like that in some form yeah sure uh it's it's can can the can god become a phenomenon therefore experienceable and knowable and remain god like that is the question Kant's of course is like no um hegel though i think like some of the what you said there reminded me of speculative good friday mm -hmm. um 
you know, um, which maybe could be read. I mean, there's somebody I can't remember who it was, but he was he does he's started to do this sort of work, or he's already been doing this work between comparing Hegel and Lonergan. But uh, he gave a talk at BC. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah. So uh, no, that's all. That's all really good, and perhaps it can help clarify some things, some of those themes. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.